Right, let's get started. Let's get started. Do we have any stats? See, this kind of amateurish behaviour is why it takes me so long to do the editing. We start by saying, welcome to episode 22. Um, right, so um, feedback from uh, the episode 21. We should stop saying from last week's pod because we, we don't do them every week. Um, in the Mood uh, received immediate feedback and pleasingly we asked for an explanation of the word mood and we got that explanation in under half an hour after releasing the pod, which, considering the pod was an hour long, is quite something. As that, that means that uh, Beth, who gave us the answer, hadn't even finished listening to the pod before she had come to educate us. And so now we know how to use mood, don't we, Nick? Yep, we do. Sometimes I am in the mood. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not. It's such a horrible image. People don't want to think about you being in the mood, Nick. So Beth also had some interesting comments about um, your rant on K-pop activism. Would you really say it was a rant? Did I rant? No, you didn't rant, to be honest. Um, you Right. You. It was kind of fun to watch you get through it because you agonised over the things that you were saying. And I, I hope that came across in the recording. You definitely... It was definitely visible in the video call. Um, anyway, uh, you have responded to Beth already, but I think it's worth reading out the comment that she left about this because uh, I think it's a worthwhile contribution to the conversation. So um, she said, on the point of the K-pop fans spamming hashtags, Nikki's point that it doesn't necessarily achieve anything is tricky. By engaging with the racist hashtags, whilst they did fill them with unrelated content, the act of engaging with them at all made them trend. I personally didn't didn't see it on the trending page until after the spam started, so it might not have blown up if they had just ignored it. However, the spamming of the police snitching apps that they also did is a much more useful way to help the BLM movement, in my opinion, because it disrupts the police's ability to surveil and target protesters that are filmed and could face criminal charges if they're caught. You already, obviously you had an exchange with Beth about that, um, and you didn't uh, disagree with her at all um but i just felt that that was a worthwhile contribution to the discussion we had last week about k-pop activism and of course um we that'll come up again later on in this one so it will do and i i think my a part of my kind of take on what's been going on recently will really follow this nicely so we'll wait until that moment arises um one other comment that we should, probably should highlight was from dr tihan chang um, our erstwhile colleague uh, who has appeared on this pod in fact uh, uh, back in January when the world was normal um, and she said for once I'm going to listen to it and it doesn't work no sound coming out I asked her if she'd tried pressing play now she never actually said yes or no to that she does says no. she hates me yeah. which I think you know <laughs> yeah um, in terms of oh, stats God. on episode 21 we have had another one of those catastrophic collapses in listenerships. Now, I have a couple of theories about this. Um, firstly, it's the first time a pod of ours ever went over an hour, albeit only by 17 seconds. I wonder if that number one in the hour column has put people off listening to it. 
Or maybe they just have listened to a bit, not got to the end, and therefore they don't show up in our figures. Could be that. I think that's quite could be or, that, yeah. I think I actually my way of being one of them. <laughs> It, why doesn't it surprise me that you don't even listen to it all the way through? Right. Anyway, uh, my other theory is maybe Tihan had a point. I was just thinking if she had a problem because she couldn't listen to it, then maybe other people had a problem couldn't listen to it. Um, and maybe that's why. But enough people listen to it to suggest that you can listen to it. Also, I listened to it all the way to the end. Lockdown update. How's the lockdown, mate? How's it going? Shit, mate. Okay. No, I, 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 there's nothing new. It's the same okay. each week. Can you, can you try and say something new? Right. Um, what that I liked. I mean, one good thing was is that recently the weather's been crap, right? Which has given me a feeling like I don't really want to go out. So I actually I don't mind being in. That's one thing. Um, I suppose I have come to terms with the fact that a lot of the things I really wanted to get done, I'm not getting done. So I am thinking of other things to be working on that could help in the future, like basically just um, making preparations for the oncoming academic year, these kind of things, which I would have done much later in the summer and use this time to do the stuff that I needed to do. But um, obviously, I just got to a point where I, I, I'm not, I can't do it. Um, I can't get the stuff that I need. So I may as well think about doing other things. Um, I definitely need to take some time off. Um, I'm going to be looking at doing that in the next. Uh, yeah. How's your lockdown, mate? Well, I need to take time off as well. That's that's a key thing. I realising more and more just how burnt out everybody is that I speak to. It's just uh, it's just exhausting, which we've said a lot. Um, but, but the problem is, I sort of usually I take time off because I've got a specific plan in mind, like like maybe my brother's coming to visit, or I've got a trip planned, or something like that. Uh, but obviously, none of that's happening, so I haven't I haven't really booked much time off, and we're getting close towards the end of the the calendar, not the calendar year, the academic year, and that. So I need to figure that out. I've got a couple of days off next week. We're going to the zoo next week. This is going to this is really big and exciting for me so um chester zoo is back open and we've got family memberships at chester zoo which we bought at the beginning of the year and have barely used because of the lockdown um but uh now that's back open and you can you have to say in advance that you're going and get tickets in advance um which we've done so next week i'll take the the kids to the zoo when did it open uh last week i think right okay well, yeah yeah. Okay. Because this is the sort of thing that I've noticed happening is that when they've opened things, everyone in the world seems to think, okay, we've got to do that. Um, like the moment they opened Primark, there was a mile long queue, wasn't there? Um, yeah, there is There is quite a difference between Chester Zoo and Primark. Yeah, I, I'm aware of this, but I'm just saying that, of course, a lot of people are going to be saying, all right, the zoo's open, let's all go to the zoo. Yeah, and so I, that's the point, yeah. is that you have to book online so that they can limit the number of people who go. And so as soon as the tickets became available, they were all snapped up because everyone just wants to go. But that's not just because people have like a default, oh, the zoo's open, we've got to get back to the zoo. It's because we've all been locked in our houses for three or four months with no way of entertaining the children. And so the moment you can take them out for a day to do something a bit different, every parent is going to want to do that. So... That's what we're doing. Um, right, well, so I, hope, I, hope, I, I hope it's a nice day. I wish good weather for it. Yeah, I know. I'm 
Yeah, we're nervous about that. If the weather's rubbish, we'll spend all our time in the butterfly enclosure. So, uh, yeah, things are getting... I feel like we've already entered the new normal, you know. I don't feel like we're in lockdown anymore, even though I still don't leave the house except for the important things. But just because everything seems to be gradually starting in limited ways, like some schools are opening, zoos and stuff are opening, non-essential shops are open now. Um, The football's back. That's a big thing for me, as you know. Um, Interestingly, New Zealand, which just about makes it in for the uh, Asia-Pacific, I think. We can talk about New Zealand. Yeah, of course. Um, So they completely eased all their lockdown, haven't they? Yeah. With uh, no new cases in just over three weeks. And they... um, yeah, they, their sport restarted last weekend with crowds of 40-odd thousand. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what happens where you have good leadership, isn't it? Yeah. All right, let's talk about... Uh, so, again, we used to call it Critique of the Week. We don't do this every week. So, uh, Critique of the however long it's been since the last pod. Um, where do you want to begin? What we've got, uh, we've got border disputes to talk about. Shall we begin... Uh, shall we begin with Korea? Let's begin with the Koreas, because then we can talk about China afterwards. Yeah, so it wasn't really a question, then, was it? You basically asked me where should we begin and then answered. Will you just get on with it? Okay, so we want to talk about Korea. I mean, it's been something's been going on um, for, for some time. Obviously, we have discussed in our previous pods um, about the exchange of fire. Um, that was an event that happened a few weeks back. Um, which kind of began a conversation um, on, you know, changes in that relationship. Uh, it it kind of recently resurfaced again with the blowing up of the building in the Kaesong, um complex. So should we talk a little bit about exactly what happened there? Because that's uh, visually, that's the most stunning thing that's happened recently, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, there was questions about whether it had been blown up or whether it had been demolished. I think from the video, it's clear it's... Yeah. So I read some commentary from somebody who does demolition for a, for a living. And uh, they said that it was, it was a completely inept demolition because you could see, and you really can see this on the video, you can see uh, parts of the building exploding outwards. Yeah. And flying into other nearby buildings and causing damage to those buildings. Now, you know, I hope and assume that those buildings were empty at that point in time so no people were hurt but um i mean it's not it's not a great way of doing it so it's it was obviously intended to be a visual dramatic thing and that's exactly what it was and it got plenty of attention why do you think they would do something in that way um so for me there's a couple of things i think is going on or has potentially is potentially going on i think one um this could be a call for a renewed push for sanction relief in the run-up to November's election in the United States. I think that there is a feeling within the upper echelons of the North Korean state that Donald Trump may not win the election. And so it's they are potentially looking at a way of getting something before November. Um, other possibilities is to do with longer conversations that we have had about COVID-19. Um, that actually this is something of which either it is 
having the effects that we discussed about with the closing of the border, what would that actually have where in many ways the North Korean state has navigated these sanctions through illicit trade across the borders, whether or not actually that there is rising domestic pressure for change. Um, and then this is a way of um, distractions, a form of distractions internally. Um, so that's also a possibility. And then the final one is there is a signal of change within the leadership structures within North Korea. Um, it's not really been clear about um, the situation with regards to Kim Jong-un. Um, and then, of course, you have uh, Kim Yo-jong, the, the sister, that I think um, is some kind of potentially could be some kind of power struggle. So yeah, so I think it's three main possibilities. One, this is just a renewed push for sanctions, um, that this is a domestic response to COVID-19 as a form of distraction, which we have also talked about previously, or there is some major challenges going on within the within the actual structures. And she is doing this as a way to kind of assert power. I thought it was also quite interesting that in the most latest news is that the North Koreans have said that they're going to be sending propaganda posters over the to the south. And, to, um, and so it's really clear that actually this has got something to do with the spread of information from the perspective of the North Korean, that's misinformation from the perspective of South Korea through the North Korean defectors, that this is correct information that they need to be shared. Um, it's just interesting that the person that was in charge, so to speak, of the blowing up of the liaison office in Kaesong is happens to be um, Kim Yo-jong, who is uh, the propaganda minister, right? So, so yeah, I was going to say this. I mean, I think it's uh, it's quite a fun headline, isn't it, to discover that North Korea is planning on floating is it like twelve million propaganda leaflets over into the south? Because yeah. ostensibly, this is the reason. So, this was ostensibly the trigger. That's what the North yeah. said was the trigger for this uh, latest round of dispute. I think you've illustrated that there are a number of different other ways of thinking about that. But what they what they've given as the explanation is. North Korean defectors in the South uh, floating leaflets over into the North. Propaganda leaflets again, it's just propaganda from a different direction. Um, but it, it sounds like quite a fun sort of headline to suggest that the North is floating these propaganda leaflets into the South because it seems sort of slightly absurd. I think people can visualise people in the North finding leaflets and that helping to educate them about stuff that's outside of this sort of closed off country. It seems much less credible that somebody in the south is going to pick up a leaflet from the north and go oh my goodness i didn't realize that about north korea um so it, it sounds like kind of a fun response i definitely want one of those leaflets yes yeah that would be a cool thing to stick up on your office wouldn't it so any of our listeners yeah. in uh, in seoul if you can get your hands on those leaflets bring them back to us please that would be terrific yeah, but don't cross over into the to the no man's land to collect any yeah. strays, right? Also, <laughs> do double check the legal status of that because yeah, handling North Korea propaganda in South Korea is probably not a great move. Actually, don't do it. Sorry, <laughs> wind back. Um, so you yeah. also touched on uh, the issue with uh, Donald Trump's impending possible non-re-election and the the way that's yeah. now going to be factoring into the calculations of North Korea. That's got to be part of this, hasn't it? So, uh, I mean, yeah. we talked about this. Uh, well, we talked about, obviously, we talk about Trump far too much. 
Uh, but at the beginning of the year, yeah. I made that what was then a, a prediction that Trump was going to be re-elected. And the thing is, I had stats that could back me up. And for the first two or three months of the year, it, that looked like being at least a reasonable, credible prediction. And I think it was reasonable that governments were planning for what a second term Trump presidency would look like. Right. Um, the events over the last few weeks have been pretty catastrophic for Trump. And it, it looks less and less likely. That, I mean, his approval rating has plummeted. To you know, We talked about that once before, about how low it had fallen. But I mean, now it's in like the low 30s. I mean, it's, that's not just unprecedented. I mean, it's just, it's not plausible that somebody who's such a low approval rating, we're about four months from the election. So it, it's, it just seems unrealistic that he could be re-elected. So now the calculations are the North. It's interesting the way the North has now uh, talked about the Panmunjom Declaration is null and void and have forbidden the South from even talking about it because it's it's no longer. So So this whole massive process is, is huge. Uh, uh, symbolic gestures that we saw over the last few years with Moon and Kim meeting and then Kim and Trump meeting, it has been declared to be all over and dead. And part of that has to be the calculation that they needed Trump for that process to work. And that's, that's just not a thing anymore, is it? That's, so, so he's, he's going to no. be gone. So they have to rethink the way they, they do things. And that means going back to some of their older ways. I, 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 at least restating their what they wanted in the first place. I mean, I think, I think the demands on the North Korean side haven't changed. Um, to, it, you know, irrespective of the smoke and the mirrors, right? Um, but what um, what we have essentially have seen is, you know, them just reaffirming those demands. You know, to be recognised as a nuclear power, as a nuclear state, um, and to have the sanctions surrounding them lifted right i mean it, it, i mean they haven't shifted on on what they were looking for right um I, I, and in, in any case this is just reaffirming that but you know it's just that other part of the possibilities that a lot of this is to do with um the reassertion of power in some form i think is also playing a role domestically within this um i'm just not sure yet um how exactly that is you know, um, we're not really clearly seeing a lot coming from Kim Jong-un himself, right? Um, and I don't know whether or not this is deliberate, that this is a strategy, um, is important for stability across the peninsula, right? And I think it's important that we pay particular attention to this. Um, I think one way to say, or one way we can monitor this is to observe Chinese military movement, right? Um, and we haven't really seen anything significant going northwards, right? So we haven't seen a build up of the Chinese military on the North Korean border, which you would expect if there is an internal collapse within North Korea, right? We haven't really seen much with regards to that. So my feelings are that, you know, it's still relatively stable, um, but it would be interesting to see how it moves forward. Yeah. Yes, it will. Um, in the interest of trying to keep this pod relatively short, shall we move on to our second story? Are you happy to move on? Um, yeah, sure. So second story, China, India. Yeah, so right? from one troubled border to another troubled border. Um, so China yeah. and India, uh, it's one of the few territorial disputes that China has failed to resolve. It's uh, something that 
often surprises students when I talk to them about the number of um, territorial disputes that China has had in the past with its neighbours and the vast majority of them, it's actually resolved and usually resolved mostly not in the favour of China. Um, but one of the few that still exists is uh, is with India. And one of the key reasons for this, of course, is that these are two massive powers who border each other. And so China is much less willing to give way with India. There's also the complication that this uh, several, there are various different points which are disputed between the two, but many of the points are along the same borders that are disputed between India and Pakistan. And Pakistan has a very long, positive relationship with China. So it's all complex. Um, what happened in case, I assume people have heard about this because it was a, it was quite a thing, but in case people didn't. So it was last week, it was on June the 15th, um, there was a, a clash between Indian and Chinese troops. I mean, this isn't, this isn't completely unheard of. We've had like little skirmishes before, um, although no shots have been fired for, I think, is it 40 years? Back in the 70s, the last time they actually fired yes. at each other. And um, there was like a formal agreement in place from in, like 1996 um, to ensure that they don't shoot at each other. Now, I remember when this, this news of this first broke and it suggested that three Indian soldiers had been killed. Um, and that figure fairly quickly went up to 20. So there's now 20 Indian soldiers have known to be killed. Um, and there are reports that there are casualties on the Chinese side. China hasn't confirmed that. Of course, casualties in this context doesn't always mean deaths. So we don't know if any Chinese soldiers died. Um, but we are led to believe that this all happened without any shots being fired, which means that these 20 Indian troops were literally beaten to death. Uh, have you seen the photos of the weapons that were apparently used? Yeah. It's absolutely. Horrific, they are mate. horrific. I mean, you know, not that there's a nice way to be killed, but like these are no, iron. But medieval. Medieval is the right way of putting it, yeah. Like iron bars, like big battens with uh, a nail sticking out of them. And if you think, uh, this sort of brawl, so uh, we're talking, so 20 Indians dead and uh, quite a few others injured as well. So you're talking about potentially 100 Indian troops who've been involved in this. You would expect the numbers on the Chinese side must be something similar as well. With just some sort of some sort of brawl taking place like that. I mean, it's like I say, not that there's a particularly nice way for uh, death to happen in combat, but it just seems remarkably brutal and really quite. I mean, not not that the tension between China and India is out of the blue, but that kind of outburst is out of the blue, and I'm left wondering how it really is sparked off. I mean, I understand that you know there is. There's basically a bit of no man's land. And the problem is because of the kind of territory there is, it's really hard to, even if you're being, even if you're genuinely sticking to the idea of of a line of control, it's sometimes hard to know exactly where that line is. It's hard to demarcate it. So it's it's always a danger that one side strays into where the other side is. And from the reports that we've had, and of course, it's it's really difficult to get independent reporting on this, but from the reports that we've had, it does seem that the Chinese side had gone over the line of control uh, to uh, repair structures that had, they had previously built. And this seems to have sparked the incident off. But for it to escalate into that kind of fight is really something, isn't it? It, um, it is. Um, so but I got a couple of viewpoints on this. I think there is a case of, 
and this has been something that's been going on for some time, is the modification of the Gorn right. Valley. Um, this is the area of which this dispute is being taken place. And this is largely to do with on the Chinese side of the damming of the yep. rivers, right? Um, which is something that's actually having an effect within India and other areas, particularly obviously their main um, river, river courses going through the country. And of course, its origins being on the Chinese side or the Tibetan side within the Himalayas, right? Um, and so obviously there has been modification to the Gorwan Valley, but here we have seen this uh, this sudden surge in clashes between the borders. But I, I, I actually have... One of the key elements, so to speak, that um, India has in many ways maintained since the 50s is this concept of non-alignment, right? Um, and so this was something that really kind of came, you know, India's position really kind of was, um, became known following Nehru's speech in Colombo, Sri Lanka in 1954, where he started to describe these five pillars that are that can be used as the guiding of Sino-Indian relations. And key to this was um, the mutual respect for each other's territorial integrity and sovereignty, this mutual non-aggression, non-interference in public affairs, equality, mutual benefit, peaceful coexistence. Well, of course, these have been essentially the framework from which China and India have had their relations. And this idea of non-interference in domestic affairs has essentially put India in that position of the one China policy, right? Um, and so what is kind of clear from this, and it is clear in a lot of the conversations that are following this from Modi, is that there is this change of movement. Um, and what we're going to see this in particular is that may well see India beginning its alignment to the United States. Um, and if that does do, and if that does happen, I think this is going to have ramifications for balances of power in the region. Um, not least, I think, in terms of the economic impact of this. So India has always asserted this idea of neighbourhood first foreign policy. We always sought to enhance regional partnerships with its neighbouring countries, right? And so, but following um, the coronavirus in or the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, we have started to see Modi's government taking specific economic steps to decrease its reliance on the Chinese supply chains by initiating further diplomatic outreach to other regional partners. And we have seen this. We have seen this increasing in a number of different ways. Um, and so we may we may start to see you know, these warmer relations with the United States, um, which which has been something that we've seen ongoing. And we have discussed this within our pod. You know, we I remember going right back to um, Modi's speech in Texas about just how shocked we were with the way in which that that performance took place. Right. Um, and, and so all of this is starting to build up to this position that we're seeing ourselves in now. So, yeah. But I've, 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 I let you finish because uh, you obviously you had a, a train of thought and I didn't want to interrupt that train of thought because you've got some interesting things to say. But there are a few points that I think I do want to address. So the five principles of coexistence. Firstly, they're utter horseshit and they always were utter horseshit. Right. So, I mean, they all, they all mean the same freaking thing anyway, like like mutual non-interference, mutual respect for territorial integrity. I mean, it's the, it's the same thing. Right. 
like non-aggression. It's the same thing. It's just it's just the agree. It's it's presented both on the Indian side and the Chinese side as this this remarkable articulation of some founding principles. I mean, it basically just means we're not fighting, right? That's all it means. So, so firstly, the five principles are just they're they're ridiculous. They're not ridiculous, but they they're not they're not some magnificent articulation of a unique stance in foreign policy they are an agreement not to fight great that's a good thing i'm not saying it it's not secondly you talked about them as being like the sort of the foundation of sino-indian relations and also build coming off the back of the non-aligned movement of course india was massive in the non-aligned movement uh, in the sort of the founding of the non-aligned movement and china kind of wanted to be but it was always ludicrous that china could have any kind of claim to be non-aligned during the cold war i mean it was a ludicrous position and sort of remained so this idea that india could be moving closer to the united states well india has been an ally of the united states for for, you know, for a couple of decades this is and because of china's relationship with pakistan i mean this is one of the things that drives the the tension between china and india it's why it's such a potentially explosive relationship because obviously the the problem between india and pakistan is so complex and emotional and so deeply rooted that and pakistan's relationship with china this is this is underestimated in the west i think this this goes back generations generations and there is a real genuine desire on the chinese side to stick with an erstwhile ally in pakistan now add into that the real politic of india being a useful ally of the united states which has clearly moved over the last couple of decades to try to stifle china's expansion of power and you have a recipe for a really difficult relationship it is in some respects quite remarkable that we don't get more of these outbreaks and clashes i guess the reason that we don't comes down to deterrence and the sheer you know partly you've got the himalayas in the way and that's useful and quite helpful um in preventing sort of any massive outbreak but also the the potential costs for the two sides in going to a real war are enormous uh, i mean you're right i mean the help i mean I, i'm just going to be reiterating a lot of kind of what you said but you know in defense of what i said but um the origin obviously the within the non-aligned movements did set the basis of the relationship between particularly at that time between uh joe and and nehru right um and although you're right i mean india has always maintained its position on non-aligned anyhow um and modi has taken yeah, but this hang on a second don't wait don't wake don't your pencil at me and let me finish what i'm saying the point here is, is that you think the problem with you at the moment is that you're thinking the macro side of things. You're thinking about this as state to state relations. But the rise in domestic nationalism as a result of Modi is, in a sense, seeing a subversion of the way in which that China and India have had relationships for a long time. And so we are seeing changes at the domestic front. Now, at this precise moment in time, because of the Sino-American relations in terms of both within the state to state but also people to people to not be pro-china is to be pro-american in many ways and we are beginning to see changes on the domestic fronts within india we we're seeing increases in the burning of pictures of uh xi jinping we're seeing this in the burning of the chinese flag um and 
this is connected to the manner in which that Modi has has raised domestic nationalism on that front. And exactly the same thing has been going on in China. We've seen this. Xi Jinping has been raising domestic nationalism, as has Trump within the boogaloos in the United States. Right. Um, and so we are seeing these rises of domestic forms of almost militant nationalism. Right. Um, and so. Yes, you're right in everything that you're saying on the state level. Yes, you're right. The relationships with Pakistan, the relationship with China, the China's relationship with India. Yes, you're absolutely right. But the events are subsequently having an enormous effect upon the domestic viewpoint of the other. Right. And as we get more and more burning of images of Xi Jinping, as that starts to filter within Weibo and other Chinese social media networks, we are going to start seeing this coming through on the anti-Indian as well. And that's an inevitable consequence. Right. So my my perspective of this is that this position that Indians have particularly held on its view of non-alignment, of not being involved in superpower confrontations has been very much part of its domestic agenda that's changing and that's the point i'm making it's changing on the domestic front and because of that it has the ramifications of it spilling over right um i think you're right but i think you're glossing not glossing over i think you're not giving enough due attention to something right so firstly the bit you're right about absolutely i mean what you've basically just described is there's a new cold war and people are not, not just not well you are talking about people and peoples and countries are picking sides and that's now happening and so you, i wrote down your phrase you said to be pro us is to be anti china or to be pro china is anti us i mean this this is this, the world we're now moving into and so the stuff about huawei that we talked about way back in episode 1 is a part of this or a symptom of it really but the post covid world is is I mean, the, that whole situation is going to exacerbate this and accelerate it. And we see that in the conversations that are taking place across across Europe now, where politicians are arguing that we or other European countries need to be more virulently pro-US and pick a side on this. So, yes, the different countries' relationships with China are changing as a result of that structure. And yes, it does represent something of a change that the Indians are prepared to pick aside. But it, here's where you, I think you are glossing over, is that relations between the United States and India, This, of course, you've got the thing with Modi, and Modi is a populist, just like the big populist leaders we've got across the world. But this isn't just, this didn't start under Modi. So you think about the US relations with India during uh, George W. Bush's reign. So in the war on terror, that's when things really blossomed between the US and India. Maybe not a formal military alliance, but something that's pretty bloody close to it. So, and, and it was very clear from then, I think, that you had a sort of a loose alliance. And remember, remember there was, uh, the, the Japanese used to talk about kind of, it was Tarawaso used to talk about like the arc of freedom and prosperity across the Indo-Pacific. And, and the Japanese are quite keen on talking about the Indo-Pacific rather than the Asia-Pacific, so they can include India in it. This is all tied into the relations with the United States. You can't get away from the US in that. So I, I don't think you're wrong. I just think that you've under-egged the pudding. I, 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 I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. But of course, at that period where we were seeing under Bush, so who was that? That was uh, Manmohan Singh, right? Um, was the prime minister, right? So that was also a period where we weren't really in a movement towards a new Cold War. So the I, I don't agree. I, I think we could see that coming from the early 2000s. I, 
Oh, come on. So, I mean, the situation with Bush, I mean, that was very much the Americans against the Middle East, wasn't well, it? Well, no, no, not even the Middle East. No, I mean, it was against some made-up enemy, uh, but and it was about re-establishing US dominance across the world. But, uh, the, I mean, the, the China situation was always there. I mean, it... <sighs> It wasn't. The structure wasn't the same as we see now. But I think it was very clear from the early 2000s, probably before the early 2000s, that the great coming conflict was between the US and China. There's been plenty of stuff written about it for decades. Yeah, no, no. I I mean, okay, I don't disagree with you. But I think, no, I don't disagree with you. And let me just be clear on that. But I just think on the domestic front within India, you wouldn't have necessarily had anti-Chinese sentiment in the early 2000s, right? Um, to the degree that we're seeing it now. So I think this idea of Indians picking a side, um, which is a, which is a shift from a non-aligned, right, it is something that is happening now. Yeah, yeah. But the, I mean, those tensions are not brand new. I mean, they, they, that's been present. The rivalry between India and China has been around for quite some time. Of course, we had the we had the war, right? But yeah, but you're right. I mean, I'm not disagreeing. But what you're doing is that you're you're picking moments of which would demonstrate this. But on the kind of scale that we've got it now, we haven't seen this. Before. All right. All right. I don't think we disagree desperately. I have actually come to learn something. I actually think I think more bottom up. You think more top down. Um, or or to put it another way, I do international relations and you do anthropology. <laughs> Is that a really a revelation? <laughs> no, not so much. Yeah, but um, I do. I do feel that we're moving more into realism, though. Well, you know, I've, I've said this that I never consider myself to be a realist until I try to formulate an argument. So before we move on. Uh, we've we've touched on the uh, the border situation between North and South Korea. Now we've talked about the territorial dispute between China and India. Um, I don't think that we have to have a big conversation about this, but it's something to highlight, and maybe this might become the next thing that we'll talk about. We have touched on the topic before, uh, but there's been lots of activity in the East China Sea of late. Um, I don't know if you know, uh, but... Uh, we recently passed, well, about a month ago, we passed the record number of consecutive days that Chinese ships had been seen in the contiguous waters around the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands. So the record had previously been 42 days. About a month ago, we passed that 42 days. It, we're still going on this streak now. So we're in 70 plus days consecutively that uh, Chinese ships have been seen there. That's, I mean, that's deliberately provocative from from China towards Japan. Now, um, yesterday, uh, it's a fairly sort of low-level local government, so it's in Okinawa, um, passed a bill which uh, renames the um, the collection of islands. It's seemingly, on the face of it, an administrative thing. So they have previously been known as Tonoshiro, and they will now be known as Tonoshiro Senkaku. So this is... Um, it's it's ostensibly to clarify things in Japanese to be clear which part of which prefecture they belong to and so that they don't get confused when discussing things, which could be a perfectly reasonable explanation. Anybody who has any understanding of these islands' role in the relationship between China and Japan knows that any time you try to change the status in any way and emphasising the name Senkaku over any other name is, is one way. It, it pokes a stick in this relationship. So this is happening in the context of what China's doing with the ships around the islands. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I, again, I'm not saying this is something that's about to explode into conflict between China and Japan. I think that's unlikely. Um, but it's interesting that tensions around that particular issue are rising again, um, especially at, in a time mm. where China and Japan have had one of their sort of... Um, they've had a couple of years of fairly positive relations. Things have been on kind of an upward trend for the last couple of years. So this is... you know There are a few little flash... Not a lot little. There are a few specific flashpoints in China-Japan relations, and the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands are one of those flashpoints. And so when, and it, it, as we saw in 2012 with the nationalization of the islands, it doesn't have to be something that comes completely top down, to refer back to that conversation. It doesn't have to be a central government making a decision. It can be that. So in that case, you had the governor of Tokyo and there was the, the national campaign which was supported and that forced the hand uh, of the, the Japanese government at the time. Uh, and so it may not be uh, a strategic decision, but it can still spark off a fairly serious bout of tension, and who knows where that might ultimately lead. But I thought it was interesting, thought we should draw attention to it. Um, okay, uh, let's move on. You would probably like to begin the next piece, I think. Uh, yes, so actually this is a kind of a retraction. I mean, this is a this is interesting news that's been kind of developing, but it's also a retraction from our conversation that we had last week. I've always been, and my reply to Bethany and her comment on the things is I've always been fairly cynical when it comes to the power of a hashtag. Um, uh, I've not, you know, I, I maintain that, yes, I still have a degree of cynicism, but I do feel that um, this, the activism that's being brought about by people on social media is now being galvanized in a particular way that seems to be really engaging with particular kinds of issues. And um, if with regards to that, I'm talking about K-pop here. Um, and so um, we recently came to light, obviously the news reported there today that the attendance of Trump's rally in Tulsa um, was very low, um, whilst at the same time it also became, uh, became noted that um, K-pop fans had en masse booked seats at that venue with the intention of not going. Um, that kind of mobilization, I think, is actually pretty incredible. That it can be mobilized in such a way as to have an effect on something. And so Bethany was absolutely correct. We see the same thing happening with um, this, this app that was done by the Dallas police force um, that was you know, out to, uh, what was the word? I can't remember what was the word that she used snitching that's it she used it as a snitching the police snitching act the spamming of police stick uh, but i i think actually i'm i'm coming around to this i think my my, my fear has always been if something becomes trendy it kind of removes it from its original cause right and so i i've given i gave given i've given examples of the use of the rainbow flag right for um lgbtq right i i just feel that actually now it's become a trendy thing but actually perhaps it's working right um and so perhaps this is the new form of activism activism works if it becomes trendy um and so yeah i think it's quite interesting so did you see about this whole thing in Tulsa? well yes and um 
So I was thinking about this, probably not in the same way that you were, because you've obviously had this sort of wrestling with the, your own thoughts that you verbalised on the last pod. And so you were probably thinking about it in that context. I was thinking it more about in, I guess, the impact that we are now seeing of uh, this this genre of music. So, I mean, at the University of Central Lancashire, we have, of course, had such a significant... K-pop has had such a massive impact on our lives because of this huge swell of interest in Korea, Korean culture that came about on the back of this wave and that drove a large number of students to our university because our university invested in Korean a few years ago at a time when others didn't. And uh, and the you know well the result has been uh, has been significant for our lives even without us ever actually being K-pop fans. So we've been aware of the the importance of K-pop and how this massive wave of interest can impact diverse parts of the world and in different ways. I it, it strikes me that most of the Western world has not really been aware of it in that way because of conversations I have when I talk to friends who are outside of our university, or even even people within academia, but from not from our university, are sort of surprised that K-pop has had such a massive impact. Of course, it's just been such a big part of our lives at UCLan. Yeah. So seeing it impact the US presidential election like this, <clears throat> and by the way, it should not be confused with foreign interference in the US presidential election because... From at least from what I can tell from the reports that we've seen from the people who are claiming that they did this, these are U.S. citizens who are doing yeah. this. This is yeah. U.S. citizens involved in this activism who have united around a love of an interest in K-pop. So it's it is a fascination with a particular aspect of of another culture that has united them in the thing that well, it's it's the thing that gives them their the identity as a group of people, but. But that identity is much richer than being a, a fan of a particular K-pop band. It also appears to be about achieving social justice. And and also what I thought was interesting was the number of people that seem to be involved in this who are under the age of voting yeah. in the United States. So you've got young people who cannot make their voices heard in the election are choosing to get involved like this. Now... I mean, I think some of the stories were probably a bit exaggerated. The um, <laughs> They had initially said they were expecting a million people to turn up. Well, I mean, the arena only holds 19,000. And I know that there was going to be this, like, spillover area. But, I mean, they clearly didn't expect to have 980,000 people in that spillover area. They, I mean, they didn't expect that. But they obviously did expect the arena to be full and for there to be people outside. That wasn't the case. It was maybe half full at best the arena yeah and so that this has had an impact and it's it's raised it's raised the profile of the point of view of these young people across the united states and i think that's that's a fascinating thing to happen my views yeah. on donald trump are well documented i probably talk about him too much um so obviously i approve but even if you don't even if you are a trump fan um it, you must find that interesting, at least, even if you don't like yeah. it. So, so my kind of final thing on this um, I, that I find particularly interesting. So in the past, we've often seen uh, it's within embedded within the music itself. 
the concept of being anti-establishment or political. So we saw this in the whole punk movement, right? And so here you would have followers of the music would be following the way in which the music was being presented. Now, K-pop, from my very limited knowledge of K-pop as a music genre, I would say isn't very political in its songs or very anti-establishment or but it seems quite interesting that within the fandom we are almost creating this new punk kind of movement right um that is very political and i like this and i think this is good because i i i have said this elsewhere just how proud i am of our students engagement with political things i see it from our past students our present students um and so i just I, I i'm in admiration of the manner in which young people are politically engaging right and it it just seems that here is two on the surface or for many other people would be that here you would have followers of k-pop music and people being politically active but to actually this amalgamation of the both i i find this fascinating i am so happy to be where i am to be able to watch and observe how this develops this concept of this amalgamation of korean because if to anyone who's seen k-pop the two k-pop and political activism it's just it's a new thing right you know, it, we, we, I, I just hope that the music style doesn't change to kind of now fit within the K fandom. I hope that that doesn't happen. I hope that they maintain the kinds of music that they play, but within the fandom, we see the political activism. And I think that that would be quite incredible and something we've never seen before. We're definitely going to get people writing in to tell us that we've completely misunderstood K-pop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, we're not going to do an oddity this week because we've gone on far too long and neither of us has had the time to figure out an oddity. Uh, so, should we draw a line? Well, this has been fun. Let's do it again sometime. We just might. <laughs>